Presented by T-Mobile, the official wireless partner of Odyssey Sports. With an awesome network and great savings, there's never been a better time to join T-Mobile. Visit your neighborhood store to make the switch today. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. This is a podcast from Minute Media. Welcome to the Sixer Sense Podcast, hosted by co-site experts Lucas Johnson and Christopher Klein. Hey everybody, this is the Sixer Sense Podcast. I'm Uriah Young with Christopher Klein, and we're here to talk Sixers, all Sixers, and nothing but the Sixers. Unfortunately, Lucas cannot be with us tonight, but I think we'll hold down the fort while he's out. Uh, We have a special guest who's been with us before in the podcast. He writes for NBC Sports Philly. He is no one other than Noah Levick. Welcome back, Noah. Thanks for having me back on, guys. Excited to join you again. Yeah, we're super excited to have you, Noah. And we can just dive right in here. We're going to start with the Toronto game from Tuesday night. That was a 114 to 109 victory for Philadelphia. Another big Joel Embiid game, which has been a bit of a theme lately, 36 points, 11 rebounds in that one. But just starting with broad takeaways, Noah, what did you learn from that game specifically? I think uh, Joel Embiid's passing for me was a highlight of that game. I was curious heading in whether his early uh, impressive numbers as a passer, you know, career best decision usage ratio, uh, career low turnover rate, whether he'd be able to sustain that against a team that double teams him frequently. And uh, I thought he did very well on that front. Uh, Four assists, two turnovers, but a lot of those hockey assists and I think was just really smart and sensible about finding the open guy. Uh, And though was an undermanned opponent, I think it's always a plus for the Sixers if that they were able to to weather a, an off game from one of their normally reliable contributors and Tyrese Maxey, who shot two for 11. Uh, still, the bottom line is, yet again, they had a very tight contest against an opponent that was missing a lot of key players, Toronto, without um, five guys who were in health and safety protocols, including... Uh, Fred Van Vliet, Scotty Barnes, OG Ananobi. Uh, and at this point, the Sixers have played 20 on the road and 14 at home, I believe. So uh, they're definitely getting a lot of good experience on the road and uh, racking up some wins there, even if many of them are, are not especially comfortable. Yeah, I think the uh, the point that you made about Embiid improving with his passing – 
that's something that I guess he's worked on, and I think he's becoming more comfortable passing out of the double team. Uh, you got to give it up to Tobias Harris. Uh, I think he's played over 700 NBA games, and he had his first triple double. So we got to we got to give it up for Tobias. I know he gets a lot of flack for some inconsistent play, but I think uh, I think that was a, a good a good notch under his belt. The one other thing that stood out to me is I don't know why in the world. Whenever the Sixers play Toronto, Chris Boucher just goes off. It's like he just turns into, I don't know, like Steph Curry or or maybe I'm taking a little too far. But he just – and then when he shoots, guys, it's like the weirdest release. It kind of reminds me of Manute Bowl back in the day. But uh, one other takeaway other than the Boucher game taking over for the Raptors is the free throw. Huge difference. Embiid made 12 of 14 and Tobias Harris made 13 of 14. So – Typically, when they make less three-point shots than their opponent, talking about the Sixers, I think their record is like, um, well, when they make more than their opponents, they're like 11-1 and one or something like that. And even though I don't think they made more threes last night, they definitely carried through at the free-throw line. Yeah, I, I think both of you make some really good points. I don't have a ton more to add to that. Obviously, no, you mentioned the somewhat recurring theme of barely squeaking by severely injured teams. Um, we'll talk a bit later about how doc rivers doesn't really agree with that narrative but it is certainly a narrative and i I think most people do agree with it um the the tobias game was interesting you know the first triple double that was a a pretty impressive accomplishment for him george niang had 19 points in 22 minutes it's been one of his best games in a while um furcon finally starting to hit some shots which is nice um it's really been a while since we've been able to say that on the podcast so that that was a positive but as you said not not the most comfortable win not really one that makes you excited about the state of the team but Joel Embiid is just a really special player he's been proving that quite frequently of late and uh yeah I I think that's really where my stance is yeah no doubt yeah just uh to Uriah's point about Chris Boucher going off against the Sixers yet again I did enjoy the Chris Boucher versus Paul Reed minutes in part because of the novelty of two former G League MVPs. Uh, And I did think it was a bit intriguing um, that, again, Doc Rivers went with Paul Reed against the Raptors as he did in the first matchup. And you saw some of the ways Reed, in theory, might be able to carve out a niche on this team just with the athleticism and the defensive versatility. Also spent a little time on, on Pascal Siakam as well. So uh, I thought that was interesting and just fun, you know, as a fan of the personal fan of the G League uh, to see two MVPs of that league uh, going up against each other uh, in Toronto. I know Chris is a big B-ball Paul fan. And uh, when he got in last night, he played some pretty good defense. He had a really nice uh, defensive matchup where he kind of shut down Siakam and I think they turned the ball over. But uh, got to give a quick shout out to Matisse Thybul, who has not been playing his best offensive basketball. He is starting to drive a little bit more. I think he drove left. And even though he missed the layup, I think B-Ball Paul got the offensive board and got to the line. So uh, Matisse, we'll talk a little bit more about him later. But but yeah, I was impressed by B-Ball Paul's minutes. So let's talk about Ben Simmons. It, you got to get our customary Ben Simmons point in. Um Toronto was really one of the first teams kind of mentioned in the Ben Simmons trade mill. Um, it's been a while since we've really heard them firmly mentioned, but they're 
one of those teams that's kind of on the toe in the line between contender and not contender right now in the East. There are questions about really what the you know what direction that team is going to take. Um, for you, Noah, is there anyone on Toronto that you think would interest the Sixers in a Ben Simmons trade? And the flip side of that, do you think Toronto would still have any interest in Ben Simmons? Yeah, I think nowadays when when you look at Ben Simmons trade possibilities, you you of course have to keep the Daryl Morey difference maker lens in mind that he he's not going to settle for anything less and uh, certainly has stuck to that thus far and, and that Ben Simmons is still a sixer and, and he's not accepted anything out there. Uh, for me with Toronto, therefore, I think Pascal Siakam is probably the first name that would come to mind. You do wonder whether he, he would quite meet the difference maker criteria or you know, secondarily, whether he'd even be a great fit. But I think if you were asking the question, he's he's probably the one name that you, you'd put under consideration. Uh, and then I guess as far as players who could potentially become great down the line, uh, Scotty Barnes is another. Uh, I think rather ironically one with a lot of similarities to Ben Simmons and that he does a ton of things well, but uh, the shooting, you know, is a is a bit of a question mark. Um, although I believe he's outperformed what many expected uh, from him thus far as, as a long range shooter. Um, but yeah, I think overall Toronto probably wouldn't be on my radar as as among the more likely teams uh, for a Simmons trade. Um, yeah, in part because I'm not sure you're quite having that potential of getting the elite elite player that Maury likes and then uh yeah as you mentioned also Chris I'm not quite so sure that that Ben Simmons would meet exactly what Toronto's looking for I mean they they certainly like the pick they made in in Scotty Barnes at, at number four and it would be difficult to imagine them you know suddenly turning course and uh giving up on a player they're very high on Hey guys, let's take a break and let me tell you about another podcast well worth listening to. It's called the Knuckleheads Podcast. And what they do is they bring on some of the best NBA players, past and present, to have totally unguarded conversations about sports, culture, and basketball nostalgia. NBA veterans Quentin Richardson and Darius Miles are lifelong friends and bona fide truth tellers. They're the hosts of this podcast. Listen as they invite special guests, high-profile athletes, musicians, and entertainers to get brutally honest about everything from current events to untold stories from the golden era of sports and culture. Named for the on-court celebration that they made wildly popular, this unfiltered, hilarious, and surprising podcast is like playing NBA 2K with no fouls. You can find this podcast on Apple iTunes as well as, well, iHeart.com or any other platform that you can think of that has podcasts. Again, check out the Knuckleheads podcast hosted by Quentin Richardson and Darius Miles. And now, back to the podcast. Is Scotty Barnes, is he a point guard or a shooting guard? Scotty Barnes is, uh, he can do a little bit of everything, but I believe most would classify him as like a a small forward, uh, 6'8 guy who, yeah, can... Can do do a little bit of everything. Um, I, I think not 
uh, in Ben Simmons's league as far as like creating for teammates or, or that sort of thing, but uh, certainly flashes um, superb defensive skill, um, can rebound, can run the floor, um, and all of that. But uh, again, w- would not um, seem likely to me a- as a potential return in a Ben Simmons deal or someone that Toronto would want to put on the table. Scotty Barnes is Lucas's guy. He we did a, a draft, a mock draft in the summer, and and he was high on his board, and uh, he's he's gleaming right now. Uh, and the fact that we're talking about him and Scotty Barnes in the same sentence, he's probably going bananas. But I like Fred Van Vliet. I always mess up his name. Van Vliet, twenty points a game, six assists, five rebounds. He may not be as tall or as gifted athletically as Ben Simmons, and I'm not saying I want to trade Ben Simmons for him straight up. But if we could get Van Fleet back and maybe, you know, a few other key players, I don't know if Siakam, we'd be able to pry him away from Toronto. But I really like Van Fleet. I, I like his game. He's gritty. He's a pesky defender. And he can he can shoot. Yeah, I, I think both of you make good points. I think Siakam is an interesting one because he's certainly, I think, on Ben Simmons' level, just talent-wise. Um, I think he's pretty clearly – the Raptors' best player still, though I'm sure there would be people in the Van Bleek camp too. Um, but I think someone who is interesting, at least for me to think about, is OG Ananobi, who is one of the best perimeter defenders on the face of the earth right now and has taken quite a leap as a scorer this season. He's been out with injuries and COVID and all sorts of stuff, and injuries have been a bit of a theme for him, so that's certainly a concern. But he has the makings of a really special two-way player. I don't know if he quite meets Daryl Morey's threshold of that quote-unquote difference-making perennial all-star type of guy that you were talking about, Noah. But, I mean, really, as much as Siakam and Van Vliet, I'd be interested in Ananobi. And I think if Toronto was to trade, you know, one of those front court guys, Ananobi is probably the most available, depending on what the... I, I know there were rumblings of Siakam being available in the offseason, but they seem to have kind of patched those things up. So... I, I'd be really interested in OG and Anobi. You'd probably have to get more back on top of him just to match salaries, but I, I, I think he's a really interesting player, and he would certainly fit well in Philadelphia. Um, and he would fill that perimeter defense hole that you have with Ben Simmons out. But I, I, I tend to agree with you. No, I, I don't see it happening. I think Toronto's probably not the most likely team at this point. I think they're just heading in a different direction. Um probably towards winning fewer games instead of more games at this point. Um, so if they do trade Siakam or Van Vliet or whatever, I doubt it's for a- another all-star. I'd assume they may be, be chasing picks at this point. So I, I, I tend to agree there. All right. So we just recap the Toronto game from last night, and we're going to go back a few more nights to the Washington win. Of course, Joel Embiid, was a monster. He had 36, 13 uh, rebounds. Tobias Harris had a decent game, 23 points. Maxi a little bit quiet on the quiet side, but he did contribute 13 points. Uh, Seth Curry, an even quieter game for him, but um, he did hit three three-pointers. Matisse Thibault scoreless, but Furkan Korkmaz, guys, the resurgence of Korkmaz. I, I was so happy to see him get into a groove that game, but let's recap that game real quick. Noah, we'll go to you first. What stood out to you? I think, again, probably appropriate to start with Mr. Embiid, uh, particularly his matchup against Montrezl Harrell. 
as is rather common with Embiid, the, the starting center, uh, Daniel Gafford, got into early foul trouble. So uh, he Embiid went up against an undersized guy in Harrell and uh, at least offensively uh, did not have many issues with that matchup. Uh, I thought, again, uh, a positive is the Sixers were able to weather one of their backcourt guys having an off-shooting game. I believe Curry started two for 10 or two for 11, uh, though was effective as a facilitator. I, I thought uh, team-wide it was one of the Sixers' better performances in a while. Uh, good ball movement, uh, locked down defensively, uh, and cr- cruised uh, to victory in the end, uh, which you know is, is great to see for the team. Uh, and Korkmaz, of course, um, got some headlines as well for that game. Uh, probably not an ideal situation where a bench player scoring in double figures and knocking down a couple threes is notable. Um, but he'd been stuck in a hellacious slump that had lasted for about seven or eight weeks. And to finally break through and be shooting the ball with confidence again, uh, undoubtedly when the Sixers get that version of Korkmaz, they're a better basketball team. Great points, Noah. Um, again, like Joel Embiid has been on quite a tear lately. Um, he's had several 30 plus point nights in the past couple of weeks. Um, we mentioned with Toronto the theme of Philly, like barely scraping by these injured teams. As you said, this is the opposite. They won by 21 points against the Wizard team without Bradley Beal. They showed up to play, which was, I think, a positive, a bit unfortunate that they followed that up with another uh, squeaker, but. Yeah, I mean, it, it. Joel Embiid is the centerpiece here. Korkma is looking like a mildly competent offensive player. Is certainly good for this team. They need that back, especially with Isaiah Joe still not hitting any of his shots either. Um, so, you know, Tyler Johnson has been a guy that a lot of fans have talked themselves into. We'll see if he sticks around on another 10-day. I'm sure the Sixers will probably, unfortunately, still have people missing time because this, this COVID wave keeps coming and coming. But, um, yeah, I mean, this was the Embiid game, one of many Embiid games lately. Um, Tobias was quite good, too, but but this was Embiid tonight. Yeah, Embiid was not having it. Anybody guarding him that night, for whatever reason, he was on. He started hot. And like Noah said, Gafford was in foul trouble crazy early. I think he subbed out at the nine-minute mark. Uh, you mentioned Korkmaz. <laughs> and it's just so frustrating, probably – more so for him because he knows that he can shoot and he knows that he's an important piece off the bench. So to see him come in that game and, and knock down some shots was was good to see for him and, and for the fans, obviously. And listen, guys, they're going to need him. Okay, it's, the, it's not even the halfway point of the season, but as games go by, you're going to need him because he's one of the few clutch shooters. Yes, I did say clutch shooters on the Sixers who has a record of hitting clutch shots. Uh, in the fourth quarter, because if Embiid's unavailable or he fouls out or he has a bad matchup, you need someone that can get off a shot really quick. And Korkmaz is one of those few players on the Sixers that can do that. So the sooner he can get into a good groove and continue that, the better for the team. Uh, one thing about Matisse Steibel, he was a, I think a plus, I think it was a plus 29. Plus 29. That's unheard of. And And we know that his defense made a, a big difference against Spencer Dinwiddie, who was their primary ball handler because they're missing Beal. 
But uh, not the best offensive game for Thibel, but I, I still have faith in Thibel. I've made this this point a couple places, but um, yeah, curious curious what you guys think about it. Uh, for me, I'm really intrigued by the idea of once Danny Green is back uh, from health and safety protocols, finding more opportunities to play Thibel and Green together as your starting wings. Last year, when, when those two shared the floor, uh, the Sixers' net rating was plus 14.7 for cleaning the glass. This year, albeit in a, in a tiny sample size, it's like plus 33. Uh, and, and I just think it makes sense on the surface. They're your two best wings on the basketball team, and I think complement each other pretty well. And the fact that defenses don't show Thibel a lot of respect and Typically, Thibel's man is the one double-teaming Joel Embiid. That tends not to be as problematic when Danny Green and, and his three-point shooting is on the floor. Um, but I think if we're being honest, Thibel without Green in the starting lineup, uh, perhaps with the exception of this game where the, where the plus-minus was really good, um, you, you see some of the downsides of him not being an offensive threat and uh, his presence on the floor putting more pressure on Embiid and forcing Embiid to make more of those passes out of double teams. And, and perhaps that is mitigated a little bit uh, when Danny Green's also on the floor with him. If they start Green and Thibault at the same time, uh, my question to you is before we can elaborate is who goes to the bench then? Yeah. Curry or? Mean, no. So I think as far as what is most probable, right. it would be Maxi, especially, right. you know, if Maxi, if, Somehow, you know, the two for 11 game turns into a larger slump, then perhaps mm-hmm. that's a little easier to justify for Doc Rivers. But even just uh, his, the comment that Rivers made a few games back, um, this was when Maxie was about to return. He, he was asked pregame what he thought about that game in Boston where Curry was sort of the emergency point guard. And he said he likes Curry a lot at point guard and uh, he might even start him there. So moving forward, Uh, And I think it's possible that as long as you find ways to still play Tyrese Maxey 30-plus minutes, which is easier said than done, uh, that you can figure out um, an alignment where Maxey's coming off the bench and maybe he's he's having to be less deferential to Joel Embiid, um, you know, because of the lineups he's with. And then you're starting Corey as your nominal point guard, and you've got uh, Thibel and Green as your starting wings, Harrison and Bede as your front court. Uh, I'm not so sure. Personally, I like the idea of bringing Maxi off the bench and um, trying to make things work in that way. But I think as far as like what might actually happen, uh, that wouldn't shock me. Yeah, I, I like the idea too. I, I It's kind of tough because i think we've arrived at the point where maxi on the surface is you know quote unquote too good to come off the bench um like he's clearly a starting caliber player but like you said his best minutes very often nowadays are when joel Embiid is not on the floor and i think all the calls for doc rivers to stagger those two more often are justified and bringing him off the bench is an easy way to do that um and like you said, the the defense is a lot better when Matisse and Green are on the floor. I think that's a real thing. Those are two very disruptive defensive wings with Joel in the paint. Like like that's 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 an elite defensive trio, frankly. Um, 
So yeah, I I get it. I I'm a bit more bullish on Maxi. I feel like they kind of have to figure out this Maxi and B chemistry at some point. I feel like it's pretty important moving forward. And once you get to the playoffs, I mean, I I get that Thibault defensively is going to be guarding a lot of the star guys, but like down the stretch of games, Maxi's going to be the more important player in those situations, and you're going to be closing games with him in the playoffs. I I think at some point you kind of just have to hammer out that chemistry even if it's a bit rough around the edges here early on but I I don't hate the idea I certainly think it's justified you're not the first guest we've had who's talked about playing Thibel and Green together so it it does seem like an idea that might be bubbling up around um, the team but yeah I, 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 I feel like you kind of have to keep Maxi going but if he does have an extended slump like you said if that is the case then I think it's certainly something Doc will think about, um, and it's probably something a lot of other people will start to think about too. Yeah, I don't. I, I have to say that I think Seth Curry, uh, over the years, he's become a better ball handler, and I think he's an underrated penetrator. Uh, if you compare him to JJ Redick, who was just a sniper from the outside, right? That was his main thing. But then, you know, he'd get that pump fake and he'd drive, and he would toss the ball up high, so high it probably hit the jumbotron, and. I don't think those runners really went in for JJ, but you look at Curry, he has the floater. He can finish in transition and still be a threat on the perimeter. So to start him, I think would, I would agree with you in that aspect, uh, Noah, but I do kind of feel that Maxi, like Chris was saying, he's like, he's that player that, that even though him and Embiid don't mesh perfectly right now, I think if you keep them together now and help them build that chemistry the next few months, come playoff time that will pay dividends. So I, I, I can see the logic behind it, but I think I want to, I would probably keep Maxi um, in that starting lineup. So uh, let's switch gears. And you mentioned something earlier, Noah, about the uh, Montrez Harrell altercation with Embiid. So when it all went down, it just all happened so fast. Uh, the previous play, I, I think a few plays before they got teed up and then they got tangled up on the next play. And then, he gets ejected, Harold. So uh, what did you make of that that little scuffle there? No. I think the main takeaway is Joel Embiid knows how to get under opponent's skin, and he likes being a troll, and he likes uh, irritating folks. And Harold couldn't afford to do that, to be frank, given the, the Wizards were shorthanded and, and Gafford, you know, dealt with the foul trouble throughout the game, and uh, it ended up being costly. Uh, him after that initial scuffle, you know, he, he later picks up the technical foul for just slapping Embiid away after Embiid gets in his face and, and uh, gets tossed from the game. But um, yeah, it's, it's a it's a competitive sport. Um, I think it's frustrating and, and difficult for a lot of Embiid's opponents uh, when he scores on them, and then is not super respectful about it. And uh, Harold's, uh, Harold's a proud guy who I don't think liked the way that Embiid went about things, and uh, it cost him a spot in that basketball game. He had to watch the remainder of it from the locker room. Yeah. Um, I, like like you said, Noah, Embiid is kind of a genius when it comes to getting under guy's skin. Like, he's he's pretty much perfected it um he's just naturally a very frustrating player to guard 
whether you want to say it's because he's officiated unfairly, which is what 29 other fan bases would tell you, or, it, he, you know, it he gets under guys' skins just because he draws a lot of fouls. And then he's kind of, like, pulled off this thing multiple times where he clearly got in Montrez's face and was going into him. It, it was not, you know all on Montrez Harrell and then he does the thing where he's like hey man back off be cool and he's kind of like shifting the blame to Montrez even though he's very much involved in heating up that altercation so I, I like you said Embiid's just an expert troll at this point it's something that he does very well it's enjoyable to watch um, the master at work uh, yeah you know Harrell is a very emotive and aggressive and energetic player he's someone who is not afraid to back down from stuff like that. So it's not too surprising to see him, um, you know, fight back a little. We all saw the post-game interview, I assume, where Harold, you know, told him be to, quote, stand on his toughness. So that's <laughs> the kind of stuff you get with Montrez Harrell. And it's the kind of stuff that Embiid brings out in guys. We've seen it with s- several other centers, Whiteside, Towns. You can go down the list. Drummond, <laughs> um, it, it happens. So... Yeah, it's it's mostly fun at this point, though. He's a Harold to me is he's like a hate the face type guy. I I never liked him. I don't think I've ever seen him smile in my lifetime. Not that I watch Clippers basketball that much over the past years where he was out out west. You, you guys made excellent points. I can only say that during the press conference, he tried to act all tough and taking shots at Embiid, but that just fuels Embiid. And the other thing I want to mention before we move on is these two teams have almost identical record. So there is a chance that they could meet in the playoffs. And that would be an interesting matchup with a little backstory coming back to this game that we just talked about. So let's talk a bit about Doc Rivers. Um, Noah, after the Toronto game, he was asked by Keith Pompey about the Sixers, what we noted, recent tendency to barely squeak by severely undermanned teams. Now that has been a theme league wide with this recent COVID wave and the Omicron variant, but Doc did not take kindly to that line of questioning. He basically tried to flip the script on Keith. You know, when we were undermanned and teams barely squeaked by us, I didn't get that question in reverse stuff like that. Um, What was your initial reaction Noah, to hearing Doc's comments, do you think Keith's question was fair? Do you sympathize with one side over the other? What What are your thoughts there? Yeah, a bunch, bunch of thoughts. I, I think, firstly, yes, it's a fair topic. Anyone who's, who's watched or followed the team knows that last night was not the first game where, on paper, they – were healthier and didn't perform up to the level you would expect. Uh, so I think th- there's nothing wrong with with a reporter asking for a head coach's thoughts on that. However, I do understand to an extent where Doc Rivers was coming from and that it is a profoundly bizarre and difficult season Everyone is shorthanded these days, and it's not insignificant that the Sixers themselves were without Shake Milton, uh, Danny Green, and Andre Drummond. Um, But I I think just as a reporter, I personally don't like seeing a coach going a bit in that ad hominem 
direction with implying that maybe Keith didn't understand because he didn't play basketball at a high enough level or something along those lines. I don't think that's really appropriate or pertinent, um, though I understand Doc Rivers being passionate. I, I just don't think it's necessary uh, to go there on this on this sort of topic. So, um, yeah, I, I respect um, Keith, you know, as a reporter and the job he's doing in asking that question. Um, and I respect Doc Rivers being passionate, but just don't think it was really imbalanced to um, kind of attack the individual in that way. And just as a reporter, you never want to be a major part of the story. And yet um, that that's kind of the position we're in uh, after last night. So I don't necessarily disagree with Doc Rivers in terms of what he was saying. Uh, the whole idea that, yeah, there's players out on both teams, like you were talking about, Noah. I don't like how he he pretty much put him on the put him on the spot talking about Keith Pompey, who's who's a friend to the show. Uh, I do think it was a, a fair question, but I also understand like maybe the exasperation that that Doc gets uh, a frustrating season, obviously lost in the playoffs last year, trying to recover the Ben Simmons situation. So he a lot going on with Doc. So I, I can tell he was frustrated. Even Keith was like, you're, you're sounding emotional. And then Doc just I think that made it worse. But I, I agree. I don't think reporters need to be, I guess, belittled. I don't know if that's the right word for this situation, just because they didn't play organized basketball or pro basketball. But uh, I guess Doc has just been around so long that I guess he's just losing his patience in, in some of these press conferences. Yeah, um, I'm I'm in the same boat, I guess, as you guys. I It really was not the best look for Doc Rivers. I, I sympathize with the fact that the Sixers have also been missing quite a few players lately. But obviously, when you have Joel and you have Tobias and you have Tyrese and you have Seth, that's your those are your four best players right now. Toronto is a team missing, frankly, its four best players minus Yakum. Um, it, it's a natural line of questioning. I, I too don't think it's unfair. It's been a consistent issue with the Sixers pretty much since I've started covering the team. Like they play down to their competition. It's no secret. It was that way under Brett Brown quite often. It has been that way under Doc Rivers. I, this is not a new phenomenon, though I think the COVID stuff has certainly exacerbated the issue quite a bit and led to new lines of questioning and such. But it, it's certainly fair because they're the Sixers, and it happens a lot. Um, I agree with you, um, Noah. This was not an, an effort-based thing um, like it has or hasn't been in the past, depending on who you ask. But it's an execution thing, and it's a – playing it i don't know it's it's hard to describe but i i certainly don't agree with doc's approach to answering that question um you know you get emotional it's right after the game i i get it but it certainly wasn't the best way to approach it all right so the next topic that we're going to talk about guys has to do with you guessed it, Ben Simmons. All right, we mentioned him earlier with Toronto, but Adrian Wojnarowski was on ESPN. I think it was a Christmas Day game, if I'm not mistaken. And he was basically asked, what's going on with the, uh, with the Sixers, with Ben Simmons? And he brought up the Cleveland Cavaliers as the team that makes most sense in the situation with Ben Simmons and all the trade rumors. So let's go to Noah. 
what do you think about that report? What do you think about Woj's uh, mentioning the Cavaliers? I think the Cavs uh, have Simmons for a while and have made some degree of sense for a while. And now perhaps that they've started the season better than most folks expected, you can talk yourself into it um, even a little bit more. And then even tonight, um, we get the unfortunate news that Ricky, Ricky Rubio uh, tore his ACL and is out for the season. So perhaps that's another uh, small reason to, to think that a Simmons trade could, could potentially be on the table there. I think for a long time, the name that's always made the most sense here is Darius Garland. And as we talked about with Toronto, a lot of this likely boils down to a team that loves its young, talented player, uh, how much they weigh that against um, the idea of acquiring, you know, a multi-time all-star and Ben Simmons, but one who hasn't taken the court yet in his age 25 season and um, has glaring postseason flaws, um, despite having proven he is an excellent regular season player. Uh, but the Cavs are, are an intriguing possibility. I, I think it's fair to characterize them as such. I, I think for a long time with me, um, I've seen them as a potential partner in, in a multi-team Simmons deal. And uh, I, I continue to think um, that that's a possibility. Um, although, you know, the longer this drags out, I think you have to believe that there's a real chance that the Simmons deal does not happen before the trade deadline and, and that Maury thinks it's most prudent to wait and try to maximize uh, the, the chances of, of landing a true proven star player. Uh, and, and Darius Garland is not yet that, um, though he has uh, been excellent um, and, you know, is only, only 22 years old. Um, so I think if you're, if you're, trying to prioritize, you know, giving yourself the best chance to win a title in Joel Embiid's prime. Garland's youth is probably something that would work against him a little bit, uh, just because he hasn't played playoff basketball before, and you can't be totally sure uh, how he would perform alongside Joel Embiid in a postseason series. But uh, long and short of it, uh, yes, I think Cleveland is an interesting uh, possible trade partner. Yeah, I, I I think the Cavs are pretty fascinating hypothetical just because they have a lot of names who on the surface would interest me quite a bit. Obviously, Darius Garland is the big one, but even the like, secondary guys like Larry Markkinen, Isaac Okoro, Colin Sexton, even though the contract situation and the injury situation are a bit tricky to navigate at this point, like, those are all guys the Sixers would benefit theoretically from having. But again, you get to the question of do they have a quote-unquote true difference maker that Daryl Morey would approve of? And for Cleveland, I, I don't think like centering a trade around Darius Garland makes a ton of sense because Cleveland's front court is pretty loaded with big bodies right now. You have Jared Allen, who I don't, I don't think fits much with Simmons at all offensively. I think that's the big hurdle there so I almost think it would have to be like a three-team trade where Jared Allen gets sent somewhere else and they build around like Mobley, Mobley, Markkinen and Ben Simmons and Garland um, 
but I, I, I really don't know what that would look like. Um, Allen has been fantastic this season. Like, there's a pretty credible all-star case for both Jared Allen and Darius Garland. I don't know if those are guys Cleveland wants to trade even for Ben Simmons. So it, it, this is kind of the same conversation we're having with a lot of teams. It's like, what are they willing to give up? And does Simmons actually make a lot of sense for them at this point in their rebuild? Because right now Cleveland has a better record than Philadelphia. I don't think they're in the market for like a panic move. They are clearly trending in the right direction. They have a lot of talent. They're very deep and well-built and balanced. So I don't know if Ben Simmons with his lack of shooting really makes a lot of sense for how that team is currently built. So it, it, it's interesting. I certainly think if Woj says they're a possibility, then they're a possibility. We've heard Cleveland as a possibility from the very beginning, so it seems legitimate. But Garland, I think, has priced himself out of a Ben Simmons trade, hypothetically. I, I just think he's too good. I think he's pretty close to Ben Simmons' level already with how he's playing lately. And you're not trading Evan Mobley. And Jared Allen's not a guy the Sixers want, so you'd have to work out, again, a 3-14 deal to make that hypothetical work. So it, it gets pretty tricky pretty fast. I wouldn't mind getting Garland, but I also wouldn't mind getting Kevin Love, which means the Sixers would have to give up Simmons and somebody else like Cork Maz or a Springer or somebody like that. Uh, like you said, Chris, Darius Garland is is playing very well to be age 21. He makes, uh, I'm looking at it right now, he makes $7 million a year. And um, Kevin Love is <laughs> making the same as, as Ben Simmons pretty much, but his contract expires in 2023. So you look at the window, he's trying to win now. Uh, he's had some uncomfortable situations with that team the past couple of years. Clearly he's not happy. I'm sure he wants to play for a contending team. He brings three-point shooting to the Sixers. He's a really good rebounder still. And, and I think, you know, that – cap space would be freed up in 2023 if they decide not to sign him yeah i i think with love though is like he, he's been great this season but he, he's a bench player and he'd be a bench player in philly and when you look at like the guys daryl Morey is clearly targeting I, I just don't think love unless there's a crap ton of draft picks piled on top of them is really going to move the needle um right. even with the contract situation i think the fact that ben simmons is under contract for five years is probably something the Sixers view as a, a good thing, a benefit, something that they have as leverage. And they're clearly more, he's a very patient guy. So I, I, I don't know if that would um, intrigue him. Something I, I've definitely observed just in a few years covering basketball is that teams tend to value their young players very highly. And that Cleveland front office, uh, obviously thinks very, very highly of Darius Garland. And, and I think strategically, you know, the, the optimal approach is to sell at when someone's value is highest, but there's always the belief that the value is ascending and that there's more upside. And of course, that's, that's easy to believe with Darius Garland, you know, someone who's so young. Um, so yeah, the, question here is not just you know would the star player the Sixers might be getting fit well on this roster or be good enough to make this team a championship contender it's also the willingness other on the other side and that's a legitimate question uh, and I do tend to believe that it's most probable um, that the Simmons deal 
if and when it finally happens, uh, is a three, four, five team deal in part because it's so difficult to find a, a perfect a perfect trade um, for both sides in, in a two team configuration. But uh, Cleveland Cleveland's still one to watch, I think, even if it's not even if it's not perfect. Um, as Chris said, a lot of a lot of intriguing talent on that roster outside of Garland and. Um, it's a little, it's a little weird to imagine Ben Simmons there, but it's a little weird to imagine Ben Simmons on a lot of rosters because he's, he's such a unique player and um, his flaws uh, affect the way you have to construct your team. Uh, so that is part of what makes this a little trickier. Now yeah. you mentioned, you mentioned value a second ago, Noah, and we want to talk about uh, the idea of, of a Ben Simmons trade value. How would you describe his trade value right now, Noah? I think uh, there's still recognition that he's made three All-Star games in, in my estimation, and I think the estimation of you know most folks around basketball, uh, he deserved that. And you know he was the Defensive Player of the Year runner-up. Uh, I think the fact that we haven't seen him on the court uh, doesn't erase that stuff. I think what perhaps uh, makes it a little more difficult as far as buying what Maury's selling that Simmons is, you know, worth a, a top tier player is just what is he now? And has he improved his game at all? And uh, just the lack of precedent here too, uh, of uh, an age 25 player just skipping the, the first 34 games of his team season. Uh, and then of course with Simmons, there's also, the component of, of him telling the Sixers he's not mentally ready to play it, and teams, of course, uh, would prefer to have their own gauge on, on his mental state, you know, before trading for him. But uh, I think overall, just especially with young rosters, like Chris brought up the idea of Simmons having these years remaining on his contract, and he is still only 25, and he has already been very good. I think there's still a lot of appeal there. Uh, I, I don't think that suddenly goes away. Um, but I, I do think um, just the fact that he's not playing basketball, it doesn't tank his trade value, but it makes all of this more difficult. Uh, and, and the fact that this is so unusual um, means that uh, it's not easy to get a good deal done for, for Daryl Morey. It, it's really hard to gauge right now. Obviously, I'm not in the room. I, I really have no clue what Ben Simmons' trade value is right now, but... I would agree that he's a three-time All-Star. He's 25. He has four years fully guaranteed on his contract. And he's one of the best defenders on the face of the earth. Like, there's value there. He's he's a good player. He's a borderline great player. Um, and there's really no way around that. I can't imagine that his value would be so low as, you know, the Sixers can't find a suitable trade at some point. I, I, I don't know if it's as high as Daryl Morey thinks it is. And I think that's where there's some tension in the fan base and around the league with different teams. But I imagine there are teams that are willing to give up a fair amount to get Ben Simmons, um, even with the mental health questions and how soon he'll be on the floor and his playoff struggles, which are very legitimate, obviously. But he's a guy who's clearly elevated his team's floor and ceiling in the regular season ever since he stepped foot on the court. Um, as a rookie, we all remember that like 16-game win streak 
at the end of the season with Ben leading the way. Like, he's clearly a very talented player. And even the most ardent skeptics would be hard-pressed to deny that. So I assume his value is pretty high. It may not be as high as a player of his caliber would typically be, but it's certainly, I have to imagine, still pretty high. This kind of reminds me of the whole question about is there is there life in space? And hey, are there GMs out there that would take Ben Simmons in a trade? Uh, you just think about the whole space question. It's like, it's so humongous that how can there not be life in outer space? Well, the NBA is like, you got GMs. They're like, we'll take a shot at Ben Simmons. They may not get what you want in return, but we'll take a shot. But I do think it's limited. Uh, I heard somewhere, I can't remember, they were talking about uh, the idea of what winning organization that saw what we saw, a player just fold in a crunch time situation and in, an, in a series, guys, not just one game, in a series, can't even be on the court because he's afraid to shoot. They saw what we saw. So my thing is the limit limitation of his value is basically he's not going to go to a Golden State unless there's a three-team trade or he's not going to go straight up to the Lakers or, or a team that's really has a winning culture organization. So I think it's limited. Of course, he's a three-time All-Star. He's an outstanding, one of the best defenders in the entire league. But I think if a team's going to take a shot at him, it's going to be like Cleveland or Sacramento because they, they have really nothing to lose because they're already losing. Yeah, and I, I think the tricky thing here is it's always like a two- or three-way street, too. There are a lot of hypotheticals out there that make a lot of sense for Philadelphia and just not very much sense for the other team and vice versa. Like, I'm convinced we'll get to a point where Sacramento would be willing to swap De'Aaron Fox for Ben Simmons. But I don't, I'm not convinced Philadelphia would want to do that. Fox looks pretty rough right now. Um, And a lot of the fit issues with Ben are not going away with Fox, even though they're very different players. So Cleveland is like Garland, Okoro, Rubio. Like, I don't know if that benefits Cleveland with where they're currently heading. So I, it's, it makes a lot of sense for Philly, but does it make sense for Cleveland? I think that is the question that a lot of people are going to be asking. Um, you know, Portland, do the Sixers want CJ McCollum? It doesn't seem like it. So a lot of these things are it's, – it's just tricky because it's hard for two teams to find common ground on a player like Simmons and on trade packages that are inevitably going to include quite a bit of salary, quite a bit of draft capital, quite a bit of player movement. Those things are hard to nail down, especially when Maury is being as stubborn and asking for as high a price as he is. Like, it's just hard to do. So I'm with you, Noah, where I'm certainly – it seems very possible that Ben Simmons is on this team past the trade deadline. I, I feel like it kind of has to happen, but also, I don't know. It, it's tough to say at this point. Um, Maury – there's no boo button on here, Chris. I would I would completely boo that. I don't want him on this team. We gotta I, get rid I, of him. <laughs> I don't. I'm yeah, like I'm in the camp where it feels like they kind of have to move on. Um I, I don't see how this gets better, frankly, but um it's certainly possible. Maury has left the window wide open um for that to be the case. So it, it's tricky. Yeah. Yeah, just two two quick uh points to add. I, I think firstly just Gerald Morey with the way he thinks and, and what he's experienced as, as the president of basketball operations for the team is especially aware uh, of Ben Simmons' value just in the sense of with the roster of Morey assembled, you know, enhancing the shooting around Embiid, 
Ben Simmons was so important in the Sixers being the Eastern Conference's number one seed because he improved the team's pace, the amount the team played in transition, and he assisted on so many three-pointers to uh, those shooters, uh, Seth Curry and Danny Green, that uh, Maury you know, was savvy enough to acquire. So I think that's a factor to weigh here in that Ben Simmons was great uh, in those ways for this roster. And uh, that's not the case necessarily for every roster around the NBA. Uh, And then second, I I just think something to consider with all of this that perhaps increases the likelihood that Simmons and that other star players are, are still on their teams past the deadline is like, it's hard to evaluate anything in in the NBA these days. Uh, There's so few games where every team is anything close to healthy. Uh, And I I don't think the standings right now mean very much. And I think there are probably a lot of executives around the league who are not so sure on what their team is or exactly what their team needs or uh, whether Ben Simmons is the missing piece for their team and all of that, uh, unfortunately, uh, I think is part of the equation here. All righty. So we are recording this on Wednesday, December 29th. This will come out probably on the 30th. New Year's is right around the corner. It is almost 2022, um, which is uh, somewhat depressing given the circumstances in the world. But the Sixers... What do we think about them? That's what we're going to try to answer here. Noah, I'm going to go down the list here. We have a few questions just laid out to kind of get our sense of this team heading into the new season or the new year, pardon me. Um, For you, Noah, which player currently on the roster to you has come as advertised, has been the most like dead on, this is what we thought this player would be, and he has been it all season. Who for you has come as advertised? I think Joel Embiid is probably closest to that description, which is strikes me as odd as I say it, because obviously he has not had a normal season. He had a very serious bout with COVID-19, and before that admitted he was having trouble adjusting to the new Wilson basketball. You know, his mid-range shooting was much down uh, from where it was last season. Uh, but I think just overall, you look at his season and he's doing about what you'd expected uh, when he has advantageous matchups, which feels like basically every night he's dominant as a scorer. I think he's had like six straight road games with 30 plus points. Uh, and he's continued to make those strides as a passer, uh, which I expected because he recognized that was important. Uh, and he continued to put emphasis on that part of his game. Um, but it's not as if he's exceeded expectations. I don't know if that, you know, that would have been very, very difficult to do after being the MVP runner-up. Uh, but to me, he's just about met expectations. Uh, the other player I was considering there was uh, Seth Curry, but I don't want to take away from the fact that that Curry has been uh, very good and, and built on a strong postseason. So I'll go with him Embiid for that one. Yeah, I would have to say that uh, a player who in the past has, I mean, before he went to L.A., was just 
dominant in the middle, rebounding, defense, a little clumsy around the rim offensively, but uh, the guy I'm talking about is uh, Drummond, right? So Andre Drummond comes to the Sixers. He's completely an upgrade over Dwight Howard, who had the worst hands of any player in any sport. Uh, he just cannot could not catch a ball around the rim. And then he would do boneheaded plays, like get technical fouls and shove somebody in the back for no apparent reason. So when he was gone and we brought in Drummond, I'm like, this is going to be interesting. But the games that Embiid has been out, Drummond has delivered. I mean, how many 20 rebound games can a guy have coming off the bench, right? So I, I think the player that I would go with is Andre Drummond. I, he definitely has stepped in and been a decent player off the bench for Joel's substitution. Yeah, I, I think both of those are good answers. I'm kind of with Noah on this one. I think Joel Embiid is really just the one constant with this team, um, especially over the past few years. It's just been a lot of change, a lot of up and down. And then there's Joel just chugging along. He's one of the eight, nine, ten best players on planet Earth. And he's going to make the all-star team. He's going to finish probably top five, ten in the MVP race every season. That's what we can expect from him. Had he not gotten COVID, maybe he'd be more in that top five MVP race right now. Um, Obviously, the shooting was down early in the season, but this has been one of his best defensive campaigns to date. The shooting is coming around now. He's had like five 30-point games in a row. He's been great on the road, as you said, Noah. Joel is just that guy, and we've come to expect that every night. He continues to deliver. And I, I, I think you're right there. Um, so for you, Noah, who has underachieved up to this point in the season? Don't want to be too harsh on him, but I, I think the obvious answer there for me is, is Furkan Korkmaz. I mean, we were at a point there where it almost fell inaccurate to call it a slump because it was like the majority of his season he wasn't shooting the ball well all began with, I believe it was a two for 18 performance against the Bucks, and it didn't get much better. Uh, we referenced the Washington game where he seemingly broke out of the slump, uh, but I believe the first three he hit in that game snapped a, a two for 24 stretch from three point range, which of course is suboptimal for a player who's supposed to be one of the better shooters on the roster. And well, I, I give Korkmaz credit for putting effort into improving his defense and giving the Sixers some value at times as a, a backup point guard in emergency or even occasionally non-emergency spots. I just think a lot of it for him boils down to are his shots dropping or are they not? Uh, and the fact that for the large majority of this season, he's been a bad three-point shooter and that's the main thing he brings to the table. Uh, not good for the Sixers, and uh, I think thus far he has certainly underachieved. That's a good example of someone who probably should be doing better considering his new contract and, you know, this being his fourth or what, fifth year in the league, I think fourth. But anyway, I'm going to go with, and this is going to surprise Chris, I'm going to say Matisse Thibel, who I've been bullish on probably since the end of his rookie season. I see so much potential in him. And it's not just because he is, you know, Mr. Elastic Man, gets his hands in at every play and makes amazing blocks from behind. I mean, Thibault is special. We all know that defensively. 
But offensively, he had a really nice summer uh, shooting a three ball in the Olympics. And I'm thinking, wow, that's going to translate. That's going to translate. And then he comes into the season and he's having a really rough time. So I thought that he would do more offensively, at least shoot 35% from three. But I, I have to go with Thibault on this one. Yeah, I, I think those are both good picks. I think like Korkmaz is, I agree, Noah, kind of the obvious one. Um, there's really not much to say about it. He's been pretty bad for most of the season. Um, with Thibel, there's it's weird because there's been a lot of positive energy around him lately. He's like number three on NBA.com's defensive player of the year ladder, which he's great. I, I think that's a bit absurd. I, I just don't think he's there consistently enough this season to be number three on the defensive player of the year ladder behind uh, Draymond and Gobert, but that's just me. I, I think one for me would just be, and it's tough to nail him because he's not really a part of the rotation yet, but I had a lot of faith in Isaiah Joe coming into the season. Mm-hmm. I was one of the guys who was like, maybe Isaiah Joe's going to be starting by the time the playoffs come on. <laughs> like, this guy's going to be, yeah. this guy's legit. Um, he just hasn't been hitting shots yet. Um, he's had every opportunity to surpass Korkmaz in the rotation because of Korkmaz's slump, the COVID stuff, injuries. Every opportunity imaginable has been laid on Isaiah Joe's doorstep, and he just hasn't stepped up yet. Um, that could change. I still have some level of faith in him. He's only 22 years old. He's on a bargain deal contract. It's fine. But I would say... Joe certainly has not delivered on the hype that I gave him before the season. And I think a lot of people expected him to take some sort of leap and just hasn't happened yet. Um, So I'll say Isaiah Joe for that category. Um, But let's flip it. Noah, who has overachieved in your opinion so far? Yeah, I feel like uh, I'm again, perhaps taking the obvious pick, but I would go with Tyrese Maxey. I think, it was fair to have skepticism heading into this year that he could handle being a starting point guard and uh, that he'd be able to strike the right balance between um, looking for his own shot aggressively and setting up his star teammates and uh, that he wouldn't get picked on at times defensively. And I think he's answered a lot of those questions exceptionally well, uh, even if, there are still growing pains and there are still some difficulties figuring out how to be uh, the best version of himself alongside Embiid. I think uh, defensively, I've found it especially encouraging this year, just the way he has taken on the challenge of matchups against guys like Damian Lillard and Trey Young and uh, not only the competitiveness and the physical tools to hold his own in those matchups, but I think also has been smart about, okay, you know, here's how to funnel the guy into help. Here's how to contest a shot from behind without fouling. Here's, you know, how to not bump, um, bite on pump fakes. Uh, just a very quick learner and a cool to see him take a lot of where he might've struggled his rookie year and, and apply it. Uh, and, and I think, do pretty well a lot of the time defensively. Of course, has also been electric at times as a scorer, has special talent as someone who just attacks the heck out of the rim and is so speedy and um, is exciting to watch play basketball. So 
uh, for me, he has exceeded expectations, even though I thought he was capable of, of being a solid or even good starting point guard. I think at times he's, he's been more than that. At times he's been an excellent starting point guard and um, it's exciting to think about what he could become as well. Yeah. I can't add much more to that. Uh, Maxi was my pick as the overachiever on this team. And like Noah's talking about just, he puts the work in, he's applied so much what he learned his rookie season into this season defensively, he has improved. So I'm, I'm completely sold on Maxi. I, if they trade him, I think they're foolish. Uh, but I, I think he's a, he's a special player. And, and the fact that he's so young is, is really great for the Sixers. Yeah, I agree. I mean, Tyrese Maxey is the pick here. Um, I, I think as far as like honorable mentions go, Shake Milton and George's Niang would be guys worth mentioning. Um, you know, Niang's a guy who was kind of on the periphery of the rotation in Utah, ninth, 10th, 11th guy sort of thing. He's been one of the Sixers' best bench players, maybe the best bench player um, at times this season when he has been healthy. Um, and then Shake Milton had a really rough end to last season, was a guy a lot of people were down on, me especially. Um, he has more than earned his minutes this year. He has certainly bounced back from that massive like season-long slump. So I, I think those two deserve quite a bit of credit. But, yeah, I mean, it, it's Tyrese Maxey. I, I think that's pretty clear. Um, so last question here, Noah. Do you think the Sixers' current record, which is, I believe, 18 and 16, correct? Yes. Yeah. Um, they're sixth place in the East right now, 18 and 16. Do we think that truly reflects who they are in the Eastern Conference hierarchy right now? As I, as I mentioned earlier, I think the standings aren't the most reliable indicator right now of how good teams are. That said, for the Sixers, like how well have they played? Uh, yeah, probably about six in the East. Um, even the games they've won, as, as we've discussed, haven't always been that impressive. Some of the losses uh, have been rather bad. Uh, I think the performance in that Hawks game was a low point. And after watching that, it, I think it's valid to have serious concerns about this roster. Um, but for me, heading into this season, I believe I, I predicted that they find a way to finish third in the East and that somewhere between third and six was most likely. Uh, I still think that they're probably a middle of the pack Eastern Conference playoff team without Ben Simmons. I think as long as Joel Embiid is healthy and is playing anywhere close to peak Joel Embiid level, uh, the floor isn't that much lower than that. Um, but I think, especially without Simmons, uh, there are real flaws on the roster. I think most obvious has been the lack of pace, the lack of transition possessions, uh, and the way that that affects so many people on this team, like Tobias Harris in particular comes to mm -hmm. mind, someone who did very well in transition last year and uh, who worked together quite effectively with Simmons. And now that that aspect uh, isn't there, uh, I, I think some of Harris's flaws become 
more apparent and uh, it's more problematic that he passes up open threes and that he can be too deliberate, you know, as a half court back down post up player. Uh, so I, I think sixth, I, I expect the Sixers to rise a little bit from that uh, in a world where Ben Simmons is, is still on the roster, but not playing basketball, but I don't expect them to challenge for the East top seed or, or be in the, the top few spots of the conference. Yeah, I think I I think that the Sixers they started off really good playing. Uh, I think they had a cohesion going on, and then COVID hit. Uh, I think the one loss that probably shouldn't have counted against them, but it did because they blew a lead, was the Brooklyn game. I think that would have made them eight and two, and then players started just falling over or missing games. I, I think the Sixers are better uh, than their record shows, and. I think that was the time when people started to see Maxi flourish and really get the minutes that that he needed to prove to himself and to his teammates, to the fans, that he could be a starting point guard in this league. So I do think the Sixers, if I think if COVID didn't hit and players didn't miss so many games, we'd probably probably be in that third spot. Yeah, I, I think your point, Noah, about you know what did the standings really mean at this point is fair. Um, no, pretty much no team is healthy. Um, like you said, Uriah, an eight and two start. There's a lot of optimism. Sixers were atop a lot of power rankings back then. And then COVID struck and it's been a bit of a whirlwind roller coaster up and down journey since. But like you said, no, with how they've been playing lately, a lot of uncomfortable wins some really disappointing losses like 18 and 16 feels about right for how this team has performed. I, I do think they will get better if they can stay healthy. But you look at the teams ahead of them, like one through four, Brooklyn, Chicago, Milwaukee, Miami, those feel like the four best teams in the East right now. Um, I don't think the Sixers are quite on the level of those teams yet. We will see um, what happens with Ben Simmons and stuff. But as of right now, with how this roster is constructed, you know, Cleveland at five, they're two games ahead of Philly. They've been better than Philly this season, but you want to project ahead. Cleveland does not have a star of Joel's caliber. Ricky Rubio's injury hurts them quite a bit. COVID has kind of been going through that roster lately. Garland is out right now. Evan Mobley just got back. I think Philly is probably a better playoff team than the Cleveland Cavaliers, but like five, six, I think that's their range right now. I, I, I think that's a pretty fair estimation of the six years standing in the East. Um, how that changes will depend on Daryl Morey and a lot of other factors that we can't predict here on a podcast, but I, I think it's a pretty fair spot. Alrighty. Um, Noah, again, thank you for, so much for coming on the podcast. We really appreciate it. Um, if you want to let our listeners know where they can follow you on social media, read your work, listen to you, etc., cetera. Uh, the floor is yours. Thanks so much for having me on again, guys. Uh, much appreciated. Uh, you can read my work at NBCSportsPhiladelphia.com. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at, at Noah Levick, just my name. And uh, you can listen to me as well on the Sixers Talk podcast. All right. Thanks again, Noah. We really appreciate it. Um, to all our listeners, as always, thanks for tuning in to yet another episode of the Sixers Sense podcast. 
Please like, subscribe, and follow along if you can. We are on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audible, Google Play, Omni, wherever you want to find us, you can find us. Um, you can also read and listen on our website, thesixersense.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Sixersense. And Happy New Year's. Um, a lot of you guys are going to be listening right before New Year's, after New Year's. We hope everyone has a great end to 2021 and a great start to 2022. Be safe out there. And until next time, peace out, everyone. Thank you. Presented by T-Mobile, the official wireless partner of Odyssey Sports. With an awesome network and great savings, there's never been a better time to join T-Mobile. Visit your neighborhood store to make the switch today. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park